happy Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So Jim, we've got, uh, we just, we can't... Uh, overstate our good fortune uh with the uh, the fascinating guests that we keep getting lucky enough to uh to join us uh this episode uh we're joined by uh carrie kirkpatrick uh, who if you look him up on imdb even though we we know we don't always trust imdb you will see some screenplay credits from uh, a number of movies that you've heard of uh things like uh, the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy uh, adaptation james of the giant peach over the hedge so carrie kirkpatrick thanks so much for being with us my pleasure. And Carrie, you have uh, as we as we delve in here to uh, minute thirty seven. I really want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, well, as much as you want to about uh, about your career, but uh, but maybe you can step us through a story that we found online called uh, "I Was Almost the Rocketeer." Yeah, I believe. Um, well, that was an interesting time in my <laughs> my life. I was fresh out of USC film school. Just a little brief history. I. Uh, was at film school and uh, have always loved musicals and musical theater. And I was looking for a way to write musicals and actually get paid, avoid the, the, the suffering and poorness part. My then writing partner and I were on our way back from San Diego, where we had seen Sondheim's out of town tryout of into the woods and said, where, how can we write an animated musical and get paid? And we said, uh, Disney animation, you know, uh, was the best place to write it. And so we wrote a spec script called Once Upon a Bayou that was a musical. And it was a really dumb spec script to write because there was only one buyer at the time. Uh, this was around 1987, uh, 88. And so we pitched it to Disney. Uh, they didn't buy the movie, but it was rare that there was a screenwriter songwriting duo which worked well for them. So they hired us as summer interns um, and they, uh, we wrote Mickey mouse featurettes. And then that's where I worked on my first movie that I ever did, which was the rescuers down under. And first time I ever met uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg on that movie. And they put us on another movie that was called tiny, the alligator, which was a full on musical, which had seven songs. And so we had written the story and, the songs, and we had one of those infamous, Jeffrey was infamous for these uh, 7 a.m. meetings, you know, that you had to always be at his schedule. So at about 7 a.m., we're in his office, or an, an office on the Walt Disney lot, and pitching and singing. So And, and part of this, uh, my partner Byron at the time was at the piano, and I'm telling the story and singing songs in a very animated fashion. <laughs> and at the end of it, uh, Jeffrey says, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Keep going on the movie. Uh, Carrie, let me ask you something. Have you done any acting? And I said, uh, yeah, I started as an actor. You know, I did plays and stuff all through high school. I, you know, I was pursuing acting, you know, up until a couple of years ago. Uh, and he said, we're doing this movie called The Rocketeer. And we're having a really hard time finding the lead. And uh, I'd like you to screen test for it. Wow. So this was my Schwab's drugstore moment. <laughs> and I was like, really? And at the time, I, you know, again, fresh out of film school, I was sporting my film school look, which was long hair and a scraggly beard. And I was like, 
uh, okay. And the weird thing was that that was a, it was a Friday morning and I knew it was a Friday because the next day was Saturday and I was about to direct my first music video. And I'll be honest, I was, I was a little bit more interested in directing my first video than I was in auditioning to be the Rocketeer. Um, but I was like, you know, whatever, you never stranger things have happened. So let's see. He said, so go back to your office and sit tight and you'll get a phone call from my office with instructions. So in my office and the development office in animation, I got a kick out of the story. And I was told I might have to cut my hair and shave my beard for this screen test. So I waited. I got a call from Jeffrey's office. All right, go back to the lot, go to David Hoberman's office. David was the president of Touchstone and get the script. So, and then they'll tell you what to do. So I went back over there. I go to David Hoberman's office. I st- step inside and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm supposed to, I'm Carrie Kirkpatrick. And, uh, they're like, yeah. And I said, I'm supposed to get a Rocketeer <laughs> script. And it's like, okay, sit down over there. And I sat there for about 10, 15 minutes and, you know, secretaries, assistants, answering phones, not paying much attention to me. And I thought, uh, not, uh, so I got up and I went to the desk and I said, Hey, I, I was, I got a call from Jeffrey's office to come here. And they're like, Oh, Oh, you're him. Oh, Oh, uh, yes. Here, here's the script. And read this, and then you need to go to Nancy Foy's office. And Nancy Foy was the casting director. And then they'll give you the sides that you're supposed to do. So I go to Nancy Foy's office. I sit down. I come in. Hey, I'm Carrie Kirkpatrick, thinking that name's going to wield a lot of power by now. (laughs) Uh, It does not. I get another blank stare. Have a seat over there. I sit down. It's like, all right, I've been through this. I got up. I go over. It's like, yeah, I'm the one that Jeffrey – oh, oh, you're him. Oh. Yes, here are your sides. Uh, it went on like that most of the morning where I sort of felt like Jeffrey's idiot nephew. <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, people like, okay. Uh, but uh, then the and I, I remember at lunch, by the time I'd gone through these few meetings, they're like, yeah, we want you to go meet with the director. So there was this trailer uh, across the lot, and I went, and Joe was having lunch. It was like, hey, I'm Joe Johnson. I was like, hey, I'm Carrie. Uh, and I sat him down and I said, <laughs> bluntly, I said, is this just a monumental drag for you? Is this just a waste of your time? I said, I mean, I'm sitting here. Are you looking at me and thinking Rocketeer? And he said, Jeffrey saw something. I'm happily willing to see what he saw. He's been oh, right wow. before. Yeah. And I said, okay. I said, I'll be honest with you. I'm directing a music video tomorrow. <laughs> like, we can't get this done today. I really can't not direct a music video, you know, like I got crews showing up. He's like, oh, well, we'll see what we can do. I went back to my office to wait for, because there was, supposedly I was going to do, so I go back, I sit around, I wait, there's radio silence for about three hours. Then my then literary agent at William Morris calls me. Her name's Beth Swafford. She's now a big agent at CAA. And she calls and says, well, this has been the weirdest day because I, I'm, I'm still going back and forth with Disney Business Affairs to make a three-picture deal for you as an actor <laughs> should you get the part. <laughs> and, you know, the way Disney operated, the basic – and I was like, what? And they said, yeah, well, you know, the basic idea is if they cast you in the lead, in the Rocketeer, and you somehow become – 
a star, they want to uh, tie you up for your next three pictures and pre-negotiate the fees so that you can't, you know, bilk them. Uh, and, you know, Disney still kind of operates this way with their Disney Channel stars. And, yeah. and they're like, but, you know, we're having a hard time figuring out what the fee for your third movie should be. <laughs> hey, we've all been there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I'm like, okay. Plus, it's further complicated by if I'm doing a screen test, you know, they got to call in a whole crew. It becomes a union thing. It has to go through SAG. I have to be Taft Hartley into SAG. You get nine hundred dollars for doing a screen test. They got to get Jennifer. Con- it's all this like. Yeah. Okay, so they're trying to figure this out. Now it's getting towards the end of the day. I'm really nervous about my music video shoot. I get a call and it's like, all right, here's what they've decided. They're just going to do a video test. And if they do that at the time, that was covered by AFTRA and they were separate. They didn't have to pay me or something. So I went from being all excited about I was going to get to read with Jennifer Connelly to I end up at 530, end of the day, in a cold room with a couple of chairs. It was like a scene from Tootsie. Nancy Foy was in the back (laughs) row. I couldn't really see her. There was a table. I had like a pencil cup. And, you know, this was these were my acting props, a pencil cup and something. And I I read this scene. It's a scene where he discovers the jetpack. Oh, right. With Peavy. Yeah, I I seem to remember the line was it can make a man fly, Peeve, or something like that. (laughs) You know, she was like the nonplussed voice from the back of the room. And you get that. Thank you. And I kind of got the feeling that it was like she was annoyed that she had to leap through the hoops that jeffrey told her to leap through and you know the ending yeah. uh, i did i did not get the part yeah spoiler alert um, but uh... it was people were so amused by the story that i can't remember if it was my idea or somebody suggested that i write it as a magazine article so i contacted someone at premiere magazine and i told them like yeah that'd be great so they commissioned me to write this article and uh without being sounding gauche i'll tell you that they paid me $5,000 to write the article. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, then, and I got to know the editor, and she was, you know, then right before it was supposed to go to print, they said, they called and said, I'm really sorry, but we don't have space for the article. Because I had done a nice two-page article, and they, they had sent out someone to do a photograph. And I was like, oh, are you kidding? It's like, but, but I like you so much, uh, and I feel bad. I called my editor friend at Entertainment Weekly, and they're going to run the story. They're going to do it. Ah. You have to make it a little shorter because they're only going to do one page. And I was like, oh, okay, I could cut some of the detail down. So I get a call from Entertainment Weekly. They're going to run it. They're going to pay me 2500 because uh, Premiere feels bad, you know, and they just let me keep the money, right? Wow. Uh, so Entertainment Weekly, they ran the story, and it was called I Could Have Been a Rocketeer. Then Empire Magazine from the U.K. Reads, sees it. They want to run the story. I get another $2,500. So my joke was, you know, back then, Disney was so notoriously cheap, is that I say, I made ten grand out of the experience, which is what they would have paid me to actually be the Rocketeer. So right. uh, it all ended up uh, well. And uh, by the time the article ran, they had made the casting announcement, and they had put Billy Campbell's picture in the in the with the article and my wife saw it and she said look who they cast he looks like you um now that that is an insult to billy campbell 
in the biggest way. <laughs> but his headshot and my headshot from when I was at that time, I was 24, 25. We did. It, there is a similarity. So I like to think that I, I set them on the right track. Uh, except Billy is, um, I think, around 6'3". Right? Yeah, he's about, tall. Yeah, yeah, he's a tall guy. He's a tall guy. And uh, uh, he's kind of ripped at the time he was, and um, you know, much more rugged. It looks much more like an action star <laughs> than I ever did. That was my uh, claim to fame, and then I, I got a nice little treat out of it, which was uh, I sent Joe Johnston my the, that very cool uh, Art Deco uh, Rocketeer poster. I sent it to Joe and said, "Be great if you could sign this. It would be a good memento." Oh and, wow! And uh, he signed the poster. Dear Carrie, better luck next time. <laughs> <laughs> so close! Wow. Uh, oh, that is fantastic! Wow. Well, that is there you go. Amazing. That, that, that is that is something. And you were up against other competition too, from uh, from what we've been learning on looking at some of the screen tests. Uh, not only were you involved, but uh, John Corbett was uh, was a very close runner, and uh, it was down to uh, Billy or or uh, Corbett uh, by the time they were getting getting into the casting, which apparently went into the final days. So, oh. and let's not forget uh, the the uh, toy poodle uh, Johnny oh, yeah, Depp. Johnny Depp actually that, uh, turned it. Yeah, that uh, Billy, Billy talked about. Yeah, he said that he he said that uh, he he actually went in and uh, and <laughs> visited uh, uh, Johnny Depp about an hour after Johnny turned down the uh, the the job. And he said he picked him up, and Johnny Depp is not very tall, so he said he picked him up like a toy poodle and just hugged him, and it was kind of, he was kind of surprised by the whole thing. But uh, uh, it seems it seems like yeah, the, the the right guy got the part because nobody else wanted, wanted the part. Um, and I bet I bet Johnny didn't write an article called "I Could Have Been the Right." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to the best of our Turned knowledge, no, yes, no, yeah, no, such, no the, regrets there. No such article exists, and that's a that's amazing that uh, you know that. You did so well with that article, and that's you know that's 25 years ago. That's no small yeah, amount of money cool. today, but even uh, but but back then even that much more. And I was uh, an avid reader of Premiere at the time. I still still get Entertainment Weekly. Um, that's uh, uh, that's a big deal. But for them to give you the five grand and 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 you know let you just keep it when when they hadn't run it, that's nice to hear. They were very. I, I wish I could remember the editor's name at the time, but she was remarkably gracious and. Because, you know, going back and forth, she kind of served as the editor of the article and kind of got a kick out of it. Right. And what's cool is I told her, I said, I, I sent the article to Jeffrey, you know, to make sure he wasn't blindsided by sure. me to, and make sure he was okay. Yeah. And he wrote me back, you know, marked up in his trademark blue pen, you know, just a big ha with an exclamation mark. Love it. <laughs> Run it. You know. That's great. Either that or get uh, off the lot. That was a so, lot better. Yeah. So well, after- and what's crazy is, you know, I um, that was that was really the first time, you know, Jeffrey, that we had an interaction like that. Hmm. And I ended up working with him for 25 years. I mean, um, I, I've all of my firsts, every every first that I've had in the movie business has been with Jeffrey. Wow. So Rescuers Down Under was my first credit, right? Yeah. Movie credit. Then my first solo screenplay credit was Chicken Run, which that's where I got reintroduced to Jeffrey. I had done James and the Giant Peach, and the exec producer of that, uh, Jake Edwards, had a deal with Ardman, and he had said to me, if you have any feature ideas, Ardman 
you know, wants to do a feature, and I had seen Wallace and Gromit, loved it, yeah. and it's like, oh my god, I would love to do an Ardman feature, and I said, let me think about that, and then I called uh, the guy who worked for Jake, and I said, I think I have an idea, it's like, oh, they already got an idea that they're working on, I said, oh, what is it, he said, it's The Great Escape with Chickens, I was like, oh god, that's a fantastic <laughs> It just doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> and it's like, I... they've, had, they've hired this British writer, Jack Rosenthal, to write it, I was like, oh, and then Jack didn't quite get how the animation thing worked, and I got a call. Uh, this is when Ardman was still independent. And then I got that job, uh, which was an amazing job, and then six months into the job, Ardman tells me, we're going to pitch it to DreamWorks, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I said, oh, no, he's going to replace me, I just know it. <laughs> right. But when we had the meeting, I was like, hey, you remember me, the Rocketeer? He was like, yeah. <laughs> And then we met and had a great experience working on Chicken Run and flying home with him one time. He offered me a three-picture deal at DreamWorks Animation and to come over there. So that was my, you know, I ended up in 2000 or 1999 getting an office at DreamWorks. Hmm. And uh, I can tell you, and now Jeffrey's just left, but I just moved out of my office at DreamWorks. I have always had an office at DreamWorks Animation. Wow, nearly really. two decades. So I did. I did a few movies uh, for that. My first directing credit was Over the Hedge with Jeffrey. My first producing gig was uh, this follow-up to Chicken Run, which was uh, a, script, a thing we were working on called Tortoise vs. Hare, the documentary. <laughs> and I was producer on that. That was my first producing thing. My first live-action directing movie, which was uh, I did a movie with Eddie Murphy called Imagine That. Uh, Jeffrey called Eddie to vouch for me and say, if you don't hire him, you're crazy. Oh. And uh, to this day, we're still friends, still have breakfast, and um, never, ever would have thought that, you know, when he yeah. was telling me to go be the Rocketeer. When you were sitting in his office singing to him at 7 in the morning, which is a wonderful yeah. thing, to just a wonderful thing to picture. Not a fun I, time to sing. I yeah. yeah, absolutely not. Um, you know, Carrie, when, uh, you know saw that you had done Chicken Run. I, I dearly love that film. I realize I haven't watched it in, in too long, so that'll be in the rotation again. So my my big fanboy moments uh, jumping out of uh, out of your very impressive resume were you working with Ardman and then uh, adapting works by two of my all-time favorite authors. You, you did the screenplay for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and then, of course, James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. So Douglas Adams and Roald Dahl. What... I know they hate what, me in England because <laughs> <laughs> I also did Thunderbirds. Oh, uh, oh, the, really? You um, worked on the? Well, I did the first four drafts on um, the the Jonathan Frakes. Uh, no, before they decided to make them kids. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and I'll tell you what's weird is is uh, I take I'm a you huge know, Jerry Anderson fan over yeah, here. Yeah, well, Huge. so I have. I watched every single Thunderbirds episode, and um, Peter Hewitt was attached to direct it and I was writing it for Pete and Pete very much wanted to keep that you know that's quite a statement uh, <laughs> you know that sort of wooden yeah. which, I know someone which who later strings. which later you know Team America did so well yeah. with all right. that you know Gary come over here Gary so we wrote I wrote in that sort of campy the, the cadence, uh, yeah. style and foolishly didn't realize that when you write that and you read the screenplay, it reads like a really bad screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> it reads like I write really terrible, terrible dialogue. The guys, uh, Tim and Eric at Working Title, just never quite got it. 
they came to me one time. This is a, one of those typical Hollywood stories, but it was like, hey, could Will Smith be the youngest Tracy brother? It's like, what? No. Because they had just seen uh, Men in Black. Wow. It's like, yeah, okay. There's an original. Yeah. But yeah, so between Thunderbirds, which is great because I was living in London while I was writing it, and every time I'd get in a taxi, they'd pick me up on over on Dean Street and um, right in Soho, and it's like, yeah, they're very chatty, and I'd get a Cockney taxi driver. It's like, what you working on in there, mate? You know, it's like, oh, I'm doing Thunderbirds. Yes, milady. Oh, you know, they yeah, would start yeah, doing. They would start that's doing Parker. Parker. Yeah. Like, yeah, every driver is Parker automatically. <laughs> oh, that's great. But yeah, and James was a really great experience because I uh, was living in San Francisco while we were doing that at Skellington with Henry, and became really good friends with uh, Lissy Dahl and the Dahl family, and ended up going to Great Missenden. And Lissy invited me and my wife, and we stayed in the house in the guest oh. annex. And in the morning, Lissy woke me up and she's like, you want to go out to the shed? It's like, yes. And so I don't, everybody probably knows about the little shed that Roald Dahl rode in. It's now at the Roald Dahl Museum in Great Missenden. But back then, it was still at the house where he lived. And oh my we go out there and Lissy takes me out. And she's like, well, here's the little chair. And she walked me through like he would walk down this path and get a yellow legal pad and sharpen his pencils and sit right here and write from 10 till one and then come in and have a sandwich and then go back out and write two to four and then he'd go into town and she goes and here's the key and there's the filing cabinet and help yourself look around wow oh you're kidding me gave me the key and i opened the filing cabinet and there's yellow legal pad after yellow legal pad and i pulled it out and it says james and the giant cherry tree which is how it started and charlie and the chocolate factory all the original and i just sat there for hours just flipping through all written in pencil all these things, my entire childhood, just like right there in this kind of transcendent moment in this room that is just covered in nicotine stains and smoke stains and, wow. you know, tons of crap all over it. Like his hip bone that he had had removed and replaced was sitting there. And, um, <laughs> um, and his dog, you know, Chopper, who shows up in the Quentin Blake drawings and, you know, Quentin Blake originals <laughs> laying around. It's like. Um, it is just mind-blowing. That was fantastic uh, and got to know her. And they asked me to write another Roald Dahl thing for the BBC, which was The Giraffe, The Pelly and Me, uh, which is one of his sort of lesser-known stories. Really? Um, and then Hitchhikers was a, a slightly a, 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 a strange experience, uh, how I came onto it, because um, I get a call from Jay Roach, who was attached to direct um and it's like jay wants to meet with you about hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and i was like oh okay i had i i'm embarrassed to say i had never read the books i didn't know oh really somehow that had and I, it's weird because growing up a huge python fan i, I kind of knew the title but this was missing somehow um so I got sent a screenplay. So I'm reading a screenplay knowing nothing. I know nothing of Deep Thought. I know nothing of 42. I know nothing <laughs> of, uh, of any of it. And I read it, and I'm like, well, this is really funny. <laughs> and, like, and the script was it was written by Douglas. I'm like, oh, this is like Python. And this is, and when I get to the meaning, everything, all of it was just like, I, I loved it. Um, and, you know, 
but I was able to look at it with some fresh eyes as a screenwriter and structure and see why it wasn't greenlit and why studios were having a hard time getting behind it, knowing what it was. But my first thought on that was, um, I don't think I can write words that will seamlessly mingle with this guy's words. He's working on a level that I don't quite feel like I work. So, but I wanted to meet Jay. Uh, we had gone to film school, just missed each other, and he was a TA there when I was a student. And, uh, you know, um, so, and we, I went to his house on a Saturday to go meet him as a sidebar story. You know, the door opens and his wife answered and she was like, come in, Jay's, Jay's not, uh, quite, he's on the phone. And I sit down and with her and I say, uh, you know, we start talking about our kids, uh, schools and kindergarten and all that kind of stuff that we're talking about. And then Jay comes out and he's like, Hey, sorry to keep you waiting. And we go into this office and into the office we go, um, there's all these guitars on the wall and like a drum set. And I'm looking around and I said, do you play guitar? Cause I'm a guitarist. I said, do you play guitar? He's like, no, my wife does that. You just met, you know, she's in the bangles. I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, that's right. He was married to Susanna Hoffs. Wasn't he? He still is. I was like, Oh, is that that's... who that is? <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, geez. And I was like, Oh, she's so lovely and wonderful. And, we're all still friends to this day because our kids all ended up, we all ended up at the same school. Okay, so you, can um, you tell Susanna Hoffs I said hi? Just, <laughs> I shall. Just, will I'll, you just throw I'll, that out I'll, there? I'll, just so I know yes. that she heard. I was just wondering if he, if he gave you the look that his wife does with that sideways glance and walk like an Egyptian when you said, who is <laughs> yeah. all that? Uh, uh, I don't recall that he no. gave me that look, okay. but I, I probably had my own eye roll. Yeah. Like, I'm such an idiot that I didn't realize <laughs> that's, you know, Susanna what Grant, the, who... I mean, Susanna Hoffs, who I had a uh, complete crush on, you know, all through high school. So, And Susanna and I ended up playing in this sort of parent band at our school <laughs> together and, and became, you know, really good friends and still are. So Jay um, sat me down and said, uh, so here's the script. And I said, yeah, yeah, I love it. I don't know the books. He's like, oh, that's so good. I'm so glad you don't know the books. And I said, uh, I don't know if I can do this. He's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm sure you can because I've seen Chicken Run and I think your sensibility is right, you know, that the way that movie's structured but still maintains a British sensibility is exactly what I think we need here. I was like, okay, well, if you think so, you know. So I got the job, and I developed it with Jay, and then Jay decided he was not going to direct it. So then they were calling new directors, and I met with, I won't say their names because I don't want to sell them out, but I met with, like, three pretty well-respected directors, and I would, like, meet them at a bar to go talk, and, and they would all say... um I don't know what your uh, language rating is on, on this show, but uh, okay. I would sit down. We, I would sit down with them and okay, but they would go, uh, yeah, this is fun. I don't, I don't want to be the guy who f***ed up hitchhikers. And uh, I'm sitting there and it's like, wait a minute, am I going to be the guy who f***ed up hitchhikers? Because I was sort of ignorant to the, the rabid fan base. And uh, but one day I get on the phone. They had called these. Uh, director producer team in london called hammer and tongs and it was garth jennings and nick goldsmith they get on the phone and they're like well uh they told us you know they wanted us to meet on this movie but we said uh we don't want to do that until we've had a chance to talk to the writer and i said huh you've never worked in hollywood have you (laughs) 
don't you know screenwriters are the fly on the ass of this business and but not in um not in England where you know writers are a little bit more respected and they had some questions for me and things and um, they ended up being really great we had a great time and they came up really it was Garth and Nick and their team that came up with the pitch that sealed the deal for Nina at uh, Disney to greenlight it because it was their visual pitch and but what was cool about that process is that there was a guy named Robbie Stamp who had worked with Douglas who was kind of the point person between the family the estate and us and he gave me Douglas's hard drive um, which had and Douglas had been writing the script on and off for 20 years. So I had all of Douglas's material to kind of sift through and see what I could use. And my goal on Hitchhikers, and I have maintained this, is that I would not tell anyone what I added of my own invention and what I took from Douglas's drives because I didn't want to set myself up for comparison. And honestly, my goal on that was to be as invisible as I could be to honor what he had created sure. um, and really not make it about me. I mean, I really tried to be just in service of the material and um, and I didn't escape brutal, brutal criticism from fans who just hated, hated the movie. And with a kind of a lack, a little bit of a lack of understanding of, I mean, honestly, Disney was really not the right studio for that material you know if you're going to do a movie that really should be more like buckaroo bonsai or uh holy grail or something like that you don't don't do it through disney right um although i I have to say i I think the uh i think the film is underrated and you know i mean i got into hitchhikers from the books and then the radio dramas and then the bbc tv series so i you know really grew up around it uh, from uh, early teenage years and uh you know like i said i'll just say it's underrated and, uh, well, uh, I, you deserve I appreciate better. it. Well, the um, I will say that because um, there's a couple of things that um, you know, without getting too into detail, and there's a couple of casting decisions that were not how the character was written, or, um, that I didn't, I feel like I didn't really have time to either make the adjustments or to, you know, sometimes you, you they make mistakes in movies where you're writing for a certain someone in mind or a certain type. And then they cast a different way. And what you do as a writer usually is you try to write to those person's strengths so that it's not like this happened to me on Chicken Run. When I when I first wrote the part of Rocky, because we were trying to write a con man, I had Burt Lancaster from The Rainmaker in mind. Okay. So I was writing all this in that kind of cadence of I'm going to make it rain. It's going to come down from, you know, that. Yeah. Kinda. <laughs> and uh, I had written it that way. And I get to the first recording session with Mel Gibson. And I was like, he sounds terrible. He's not doing it right at all. But I realized I was asking Mel Gibson to do Burt Lancaster. It's like, how about I write it for Mel Gibson and what Mel Gibson's strengths are and totally change the character. And it's like, and then it's like, he was great. And Hitchhikers, I didn't quite have enough. I didn't, I don't feel like I was able to do that. And the script reads, you know, I I disagreed with Garth just about casting kids as the, the two guys looking for the answer. And there were just some other other British talent that I think could have nailed some of those jokes a little better, you know, the Hugh Laurie's of the world. And because when you have someone like Bill Nighy is Slarty Bardfest, who's awesome. And uh, why am I blanking on <laughs> the great actor who did the voice of the book? Oh, who, uh, Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry. So yeah, you know, uh, Fry and Laurie. Yeah. So yeah, yeah Fry and Laurie, you know, he was awesome. And Alan 
Rickman was as Marvin was great and Sam Rockwell and you know these there's certain things that I do think um that the script held up pretty well like I said I just I don't um I never divulge what bit was mine because there were some entries to the book that had to be written and that was very daunting <laughs> I can imagine yeah that was that was uh like man I don't know if I can pull this off so wow. I really enjoyed working on it, going over to England and rehearsing with those guys because I had just finished watching the British office. And so I was in awe of Martin Freeman, as I still am. Oh, absolutely. Um, so getting and Zoe Deschanel, of course. Well, and Zoe and I had done a movie. Uh, we did two movies together because she did this little indie film that I wrote called Flakes. She's great. And um, I had done a... Um, then later I did Spiderwick Chronicles with, um, and Caleb, her dad, was the DP on it. So, all in the Deschanel family. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to take you back to uh, back to the Rocketeer era when uh, when you were back at uh, at Disney. That was roughly the time that the uh, the documentary uh, Waking uh, Sleeping Beauty was was focused on the early the conversion of. The, the slumbering Disney into the, you know, the, the animation powerhouse that it became in the, in the eighties and nineties and you know, being part of, uh, you know, the rescuer series and stuff like that. And watch, watching that, you, you were there for that change at the, at the very beginning. Do you think that Rocketeer didn't fit in with that whole concept of where, where they were trying to take the studio at the time where, where Katzenberg was going with that? Or, um, I don't know. I, I do remember. I mean, at that time I, I was so focused in the animation world, because I had the good fortune of writing the animated movie that was sandwiched between Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, which were kind of starting this new animation, you know, revolution, yeah. sort of the rebirth of it. And unfortunately, you know, Rescuers didn't quite perform the way those others did. Rescuers was originally a musical. I mean, it had a couple of songs in it, and my partner and I had written a couple of songs. They decided not to make it a musical. And so I think we got a little bit lost in once once Jeffrey had Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. Once he hit that groove with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, those musicals and, you know, they, they kind of figured out what that that end of the studio was about. Uh, and at that time, you know, the Disney philosophy, Jeffrey's philosophy was regarding movie stars and they were so frugal. That you know, you remember that was like get them on the way up or get them on the way down, yeah. right? They were doing things, and forever. I mean, Jeffrey's all-time favorite movie that he made while at Disney and kept trying to remake. I, I remember being at DreamWorks Animation, and you're always looking for live-action paradigms, and he's like down and out in Beverly Hills, not down and out <laughs> in Beverly Hills. Yeah, is that the one with Nick Nolte? Yeah, Nick Nolte. Yeah, yeah. 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 Bodu Sovetis. Oh, yeah. Exactly. He's just like that was just <laughs> the perfect movie for him, you know. All of those movies like that, Pretty Woman was being made when I was there. And What About Bob, I think they were doing there. And, you know, those kinds of movies is, is where they were really thriving. And I, I don't think they quite had hit that action movie sweet spot. Can you, yeah, I don't no, know, I mean, can you think of others that they did then? What, that, one of the things that I can never figure out is why they released the Rocketeer as a Walt Disney picture instead of a touchstone picture. Because it doesn't seem like, I, I think what they were trying to do is going for merchandising and stuff. And they, all the merchandising that was coming out of it was aimed for kids. You know, it was going to be like, I think Burger King or something like that. And all, all the all the stuff they were expecting, this was going to be a kid's movie. But it was 
I mean, if you look at the poster artwork and stuff like that, all that iconic art deco, that's not going to appeal to a kid. And it it, it just right. seemed it's it seemed like it was misplaced in their um, you know, in their portfolio. It seemed like it would have been a perfect touchstone film. I don't know if that's what I, destroyed it or we're not. You know, we we talk about it. Might that a lot. be. I think. I bet you they were. You know, you would you would lean on that Walt Disney logo and that brand to do a lot of the marketing work for you in terms of saying to an audience what's safe to come to. So I guess they were hoping that it would bring in, it feels like you're right that that, you know, that, that market was probably too young for Rocketeers and it wasn't necessarily bringing in teenage boys, you know, 12 to 18 or so. And yeah, it might've been a slightly different perception. Was, was there much buzz about the movie during production? Did you hear much when, when you're, you know, in on the campus of, uh, of Disney it, um, or is it just another production going on? No, I think they had super high hopes for for it to be a franchise. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it was going to be like the next Indiana Jones or something and they'd be able to ta- tag it with other stuff and channel. They could, they could have done like animated series with it and stuff like that, but it just never... What happened, I, I think the biggest thing that it was clobbered by two weeks before Robin Hood Prince of Thieves came out, and then the week after it showed up, Terminator 2 hit the screens. So with, you know, the summer dollars all went to those other two movies, and uh, and that and then City Slickers followed the following week after Terminator 2. So Rocketeer got lost because it didn't have, it didn't have a target audience, and it didn't have a lot of word of mouth that wasn't swallowed up by Terminator. So right. just, uh, I don't know. I don't know what they could have done to to resolve it, other than maybe putting it out at a different time of year, or maybe putting it or marketing it differently. Because it just didn't. It's it, it wasn't a kids movie, but it was it was more like an Indiana Jones movie. But they never sold it like that, um, or they tried to, but it was too late. It had already been released, and it's hard to uh, you know reheat the mashed potatoes. Yeah, and we didn't see that. Uh... You know the more traditional poster. I mean, I will always, uh, always just love the Art Deco one. Uh, but I know what it means, and I know what it, you know what it means to me. But the, you know, the more traditional hero poster with the photos of the cast and Billy Campbell up top, explosions and stuff, quite like heroic. That. Yeah, exactly, yes. and air, aircraft flying and everything else. You know, that tells you at least what the movie is about. And, and I, I can tell you, just being on there's. There are so many arguments that happen over movie posters. It's just, you know, arguments that you are, <laughs> that the filmmakers rarely win. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, um, I, I know this is, a, I know this is a big wide open question and, and I, we do appreciate you being on for so long, but uh, what would you say is the biggest change in the way movies were made back then versus the way that movies are made now? Is it harder? Is it easier? Are there, you know, where, where, where do you see, you know, a production starting as being a lot more difficult or? I think it's a lot harder today personally, um, just to, uh, because there's so many screens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're trying to fill it. You're trying to fill in a lot of, uh, you've got a lot of software to eat. And, yeah. And when I see different screens. Yeah. Like, like Netflix's and the Hulu's of the world and trying to find, trying to find the audience that will pay for it or. Yeah. It's just so many, um, uh, it's hard these days because everybody's looking for tent poles. It's kind of hard to, you know, for original content, like all of that ends up being on Netflix or HBO or, you know, so to do a feature like that in this Marvel world, you know, where everything is either a superhero movie or, um, you know, needs to be something, 
big like that. Like even animated movies today, because there's so many of them, it's hard. Those used to be special, and it's it's every every weekend is so crowded. Everything hinges on your opening weekend. It's really it's gotten a lot more difficult. Yeah, so so there's a lot a lot more chances of it's not a total success. You'll never see it again. Is is well, but that that's what happened to the Rocketeer. So I guess that part hasn't changed right. over thirty years. Yeah, these days yeah. it's all about if it doesn't have a massive uh, record-setting opening weekend, it's gone right away. It's, it's really hard. Do you think that live action has a bigger chance over uh, animated, or is I mean, does it matter anymore? Do you think that uh, having an animated film versus a versus a live action uh, that the audience changes significantly? Um, yeah, but those lines are getting so blurred now. You know, <laughs> is Guardians mm-hmm. of the Galaxy live action or animated? I mean, yeah. it's like, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I still, I'm, I'm pretty old school. I think a good story, well told. Uh, finds an audience, you know, you know, and just the question is getting people to theaters where screens get bigger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in your home theater and the the viewing experience in your house is pretty good. You can get great audio and big, pretty big screens. And it just gets harder to, to make it an event that people want to go see, you know, when shows like Breaking Bad and Veep and like everything hates been Game of Thrones and everything that's coming out uh, a television medium is so epic and so great. Like I think some of the best writing is now on on TV. It gets it gets it gets hard it, and it's hard for studios you know to figure out what to make. Yeah, I, I would to... I, I would imagine that you know instead of making a, an hour and a half movie that you're trying you now have to think about fourteen hours to do you know a, a season of Game Game of Thrones which has to be all shot at once so that you, you can do all the production right. The, the taxing on the on the screenwriter must be immense. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, it's uh, um, there's this recurring theme here that 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 show business is absolutely a crazy business. It seems like it's always changing, it's always evolving, and it and it's uh, it's interesting listening uh, to this, participating in this, and then thinking about the the particular minute uh, it was minute thirty seven that we're in here uh, on this episode, and uh, uh, you've got. So you got Timothy Dalton, who most of this minute is him running to try to sort of unfire Jenny Blake. And, uh, you know, we see him putting the flats back up and he's shoving the extras out of the way. He almost runs over a minstrel at one point. And again, you know, who among us has not done that? But there's right at second 40. I just I have to call this out. He's 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 angry. He's stressed. He's frustrated. He's running along. But then second 40. He flips the the switch, hits the Timothy Dalton grin, and he actually primps his wig a couple of times to make sure that he looks good before he uh, before he gets Jenny Blake's attention. Of course, she turns around and she's in tears at the end. But just that that ridiculous little thing that he does that's so believable. I can so imagine, you know, an actor in his position stopping to to tidy the wig and turn on the smile i think one of the reasons that that uh, carrie that we had you on for this minute was the craziness uh, you know shown in the rocketeer just never stops that you know you're at the whims of um you know the the top flight actors and the directors having to deal with uh sudden casting changes during a production and and uh, and pressures from inside and outside of the of the production um i guess that that's never going to change no matter what the technology no matter what the no matter what the format no matter what the audience so um, I guess that's no. I'm I'm dealing with it now. I'm directing a, the movie at Warner Brothers and and am on the other end as the director, being thrown casting decisions that are being driven by the marketing department. Being told, you know, it sure would be great if this person because yeah. they're they're easy to book on talk yeah. shows. 
and let's get Will Smith as a Tracy brother. Exactly. <laughs> is is that the is that I mean, is that the worst note you've ever? What is the worst note you've ever received on on a production? Uh, the worst. Let's see. The worst note I ever received was when I was writing Smurfs two, and I got a note from the studio that Grouchy Smurf was a little one note. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm like, no, no disrespect yeah. intended, but isn't every single Smurf, by definition, one yeah. note? Well, it's right. like, what do you want me? You want, you need me to bring some subtle nuance to Grouchy's yeah. character? Yeah, have you, ha, yeah. Have you ever seen Snow White? Have you ever noticed? <laughs> yes. yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. You know Sneezy? Guess what he does all the time? <laughs> yes, exactly. Wow. You want you want Sleepy to wake up a little? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that was that was. Well, probably my worst studio note. I did get a note while I was at Disney. I had turned in something in the studio executive there, Charlie Fink. I got the page back and it went and there was a note written on it and it said two thirds more funny. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I looked at this note. I was like, wow, that is just a weird fraction (laughs) to ask for how much funnier it should be. And it was... And it, he was like, no, I meant the second third part of thir- uh, third, the second third of the movie should be funnier or something like that. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, okay. Two thirds. But I was funny. like, for the longest time, that became a, just a, something that me and my fellow writers would be like, that oh, needs to be two thirds more funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had just, as a, I, I had just read a, a, a biography of the later years of Groucho Marx's life. And he had talked about uh, doing the movie, the coconuts and, um, uh, Irving Berlin was was a composer for for some of the songs in it, and one of the songs that he had written, he not written it for the purpose of it, but he tried to sell it in uh, the Coconuts was uh, always his, you know, the, fam- the famous uh, Berlin song always, and uh, uh, the studio cut it. They said, and their their uh, the reason for cutting it was they said not funny, and uh, Berlin uh, found found that hysterical, and he used to write Christmas card notes to uh, Groucho, and always end end it with the same note. He'd say, "No matter how I think of it, uh, adding always would n- never have made coconuts any funnier." Uh, you know, love Irving Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh, that's great. Uh, famous, there's a great memo going around, you know, that you've seen where uh, in MGM days on uh, the notes from uh, watching Wizard of Oz. And the studio note saying, cut the rainbow song. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, yeah, cut that annoying rainbow song or yeah, perfect n- song ever written. Yeah, n- nobody's ever going to remember that one. Yes. Exactly. And, we, oh we've talked with several people about the, the issues that uh, Joe Johnson had with uh, with the higher-ups at Disney, and it, it just it got very acrimonious. Um, but one of the things that they wanted to do was get rid of that silly helmet. Um, <laughs> yeah, they wanted to do a, like more of a space helmet so you could see his face. And, oh boy! Yeah. Yeah. No, this but, this happens a lot. Again, it's the uh, Tracy brother. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and and you know um, why uh, Grouchy Smurf is Grouchy? Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> um, I, you know, I sud- so. suddenly I want to see that Will Smith Thunderbirds movie. Though I just uh, I'm strangely compelled. It, but, yes. Wow. But, Weirdly fascinating. And then we, okay. oh, sorry, we had gone, and Pete and I had gone to see a movie. It was called Courage Under Fire. And uh, we oh, came yeah. back and we said, we found the perfect, why am I blanking on the youngest Tracy, but the Jeff is the dead. It was uh, uh, Alan. We found yeah, the perfect Alan, Alan uh, this new kid. He's great in this movie, uh, Matt Damon. They're like, 
like, no, nah, he's not going to be. He, and they were like, he's not going to be anything. I was like, jeez. Okay. Uh, who who was you? Yeah. Could you give us the original casting? I mean, I, I, I'm a, was Paxton involved? Were any of those any of the ones in the? Oh no, I was me and Pete were long gone. Oh. Uh, Jeff Bridges was who Pete wanted to play. Jeff Tracy. Okay. Did you did you have a brains? Uh, we did not have a brains. I think Parker. We wanted Pete Possethwaite. Okay. Um, and I think uh, Kristen Scott Thomas was going to be Lady. Oh Penelope. wow! Yeah. I could see wow. that. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. Uh, I would. I, I wanted to see. I would want to see that movie. <laughs> what, was there anything left of uh, of your writing and what we what we saw on screen? No, not at all. That I then, found the movie unrecognizable. Yeah. Then, then I don't mind saying that that is not a film that I consider underrated. <laughs> like no, I do, I was, trying to I be was, polite here. I, I just thought it was a conceptual conceptual misfire. And I'll tell you what happened is. The studios didn't know what they had, and Spot Kids came out, and they were like, yeah, let's do that. Right. Like, well, you're missing the point. Oh, dear. Well. Um, but I told Pete halfway through, I said, I think you should make it with puppets oh. and yeah. just do it kind of cheesy. Right. And he was so into, like, how cool the ships we had designed looked. And he was like, what? That's crazy. And then Team America came out, and I was like, see, I wasn't so crazy. That's yeah. funny. Told you so. Um, wow. So. Yeah, I mean, it could have been a, a, a another a puppet a puppet Austin Powers. I mean, that's, that's how it could have worked. But oh well, exactly. Uh, wow. Well, Carrie, th- thanks so much for talking a, lo- a little bit about the Rocketeer and a, a lot about your career. We appreciate it very much. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> this has been fascinating. Uh, my pleasure. It, it's a thrill. Yeah. And, uh, it, uh, we're, we're we're recording this on a Friday, so enjoy your weekend. But uh, for folks who want to talk some more about this, please join us on uh, on our social media. We've got a bunch of places you can do it. Of course, always on Twitter at uh, Rocketeer Minute. You can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Rocketeer Minute. And, of course, the big site, RocketeerMinute.com, where this episode and a bunch of other episodes are also out there. Uh, find us on iTunes and Google Play. Sign up uh, just by typing in Rocketeer Minute and hitting the subscribe button. And you can get a lot of this uh, great content delivered hot and fresh every day, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, join us here tomorrow when we talk a little bit more about the Laughing Bandit and, uh, and where he's going to go with Jenny. So we'll see you tomorrow here on the Rocketeer Minute. Until next time, over and out.